0: Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Bender Bending Rodriguez and his
1: shiny metal ass. Let's dim the lights. And Bender, dim your shiny metal ass.
2: Welcome everybody to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by SkyBank. The elite bank for millionaires only. Or we will call the cops. For some reason. SkyBank. SkyBank. <laughs> That one is so inside. That's the
0: best. That's awesome. And nobody has any idea what the hell we're
2: talking about. Oh, it's so good. Isn't that just the most insane thing? A bank calling the cops because they don't like a person in the lobby? Oh, my God
0: oh god i just love it don't explain it don't explain it nobody will know what we're talking about and i they don't need to it's fine it's fine
2: it's fine oh, welcome everybody so to brilliant. the pestle i am wes and i am todd and i'm alex <laughs> he's alex i'm billy
0: <laughs> we're just gonna have a moment for ourselves yeah, everybody this is the
2: us moment <laughs> We are filmmakers. <laughs> I've been a full-time writer director for about a decade now, um, and we use that kind of inside knowledge um, of oh. how to make things, how to uh, you know create something. My brain is scrambled eggs right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm
2: trying to- <laughs> Todd is used to <laughs> never so knowing where the hell these sponsors are coming from. <laughs> yeah. This is so good. Uh, oh man. It's so, okay. we use all that to analyze films and see what they're made of. That's why we're called the pestle. We're like a mortar and pestle, like in your kitchen. Well, probably not in anyone's kitchen in 2023, um, <laughs> but we use that kind of thought to talk about films and shows yeah what film or show are we talking about today comrade
0: oh uh the show today we are talking about is the uh limited mini series on max called chernobyl so if you haven't seen this series please pause the episode or if you weren't alive in 1986 <laughs> uh please pause the episode go watch it i guess we're gonna spoil some stuff i mean yeah i think we would because the first time i saw it i just didn't realize 90 mm-hmm. percent of it so yeah so we will spoil a lot but we'll reveal a lot too, I think. So uh, just pause the episode, go watch it. It is only five episodes long. They're about an hour long each, but um, a little bit more, um, but well worth it.
2: Well worth it. We'll look at, uh, I'll see if I can cut myself off after a certain point because so many notes, Um, too many notes. Uh, And so we'll look at like some of the cinematography, lens flares, stabilizing a shot uh, and the effect it can have on the viewer. Um, we'll look at story and writing, horror, tragedy, tension, threats, and other such stuff and things
0: and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the show. In April 1986, an explosion at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the USSR becomes one of the world's worst man-made catastrophes. It's created and written by Craig Mazin, cinematography by Jacob Eyer. It's featuring Jared Harris as Valery Legasov. Stellan Skarsgård as Boris Sherbina, Jesse Buckley as Ludmilla, the pregnant wife, Emily Watson as Ulana, the nuclear physicist, Barry Keegan as Pavel, the animal control kid, and Paul Ritter as Anatoly Dyatlov.
1: When the lava enters these tanks, it will instantly superheat and vaporize approximately 7,000 cubic meters of water, causing a significant thermal explosion. How significant? We estimate between two and four megatons. Everything within a 30-kilometre radius will be completely destroyed, including the three remaining reactors at Chernobyl. The entirety of the radioactive material in all of the cores will be ejected at force and dispersed by a massive shockwave, which will extend approximately 200 kilometres and likely be fatal to the entire population of Kiev, as well as a portion of Minsk. The release of radiation will be severe and will impact all of Soviet Ukraine, Latvia, Lithuania, Belarusia, as well as Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, and most of East Germany. What do you mean, uh, impact? For much of the area, a nearly permanent disruption of the food and water supply. Steep increase in the rates of cancer and birth defects. I don't know how many deaths there will be, but many. For Belarusia and the Ukraine, impact means completely uninhabitable for a minimum of 100 years. There are more than 50 million people living in Belarusia and Ukraine. 60, yes. And how long before this happens? Approximately 48 to 72 hours. Good news all around. Oh
0: <laughs> hell.
2: We have a problem, but there's time. <laughs> so <laughs> Time, not much, but there is some. <laughs> so this, oh my God, that scene, I don't know. I want to call it out right after watching it with you, but. That whole scene is so brutal. um, And that chunk in particular really sets the stakes. Um, But visually, there's something interesting that kind of happens in there, which is uh, the scene is almost entirely handheld shots, or at least guys probably handheld sitting on some kind of dolly um, so that they can tilt and move around and slide a little bit left and right. Um, And so it's all handheld. It's very shaky. But as Gorbachev, she says what she says, and he's processing, and then he's asking you know, uh, Legosov, what that really means. What, what kind of impact are we talking? He starts talking about, you know, mass hysteria. <laughs> like this is worst case possible imaginable. Um, and then we cut finally after hearing all that and we're getting, we're getting reaction shots around the room, right. And seeing everyone being like, Oh God, like, and trying to act like they're not thinking, Oh God. And then we finally cut back to Gorbachev and we've gone from handheld all around this entire time to suddenly as he's digesting, and processing this analysis, they stabilize that shot, his reaction shot right there stabilized, and suddenly it looks like his head is swimming, it's floating or kind of detached with anxiety. That's a beautiful, very, very subtle visual touch um because the difference between those handheld shots and that stabilized shot isn't much, but whenever you're establishing that language so well and then suddenly. You know, everything is a little bit smoother and you're just kind of floating around. You can feel his anxiety start to swim around with him. Uh, It's just little flourishes like that, man, drive me nuts. Like I just, it's so inspired. Those little moments like that are so inspired. So Comrade Todd, what, uh, what one, uh, I'm curious what you remember from being a kid and and this happening, like, were you aware as it was happening or was it like years later that you're like, Oh crap. Um, uh, or anything at all, I don't know. Uh, and then watching it and experiencing it in this way—that's different. That's a completely different uh, experience than what we saw.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was six when it happened. So w- when it happened, I had—I didn't yeah. know. You know, I didn't know whatever. Um, if I knew anything, it was just that there was an accident, like an explosion. But that doesn't mean anything to somebody on the other side of the world, especially the type of explosion. And then. When I got older, you know, I'd heard of it. I knew that it was it was something. It was like a just a name, like a famous name, but I didn't know anything about it. Still, until I watched the series, I, I, I didn't have any idea that it was still an issue, <laughs> that it was still a place, like basically like a still off limits to people and and everything. So, the first time I watched it, it was it became pretty quickly my favorite series like ever it was it was just i think there's something about it being actually something that exists now and mm. something that actually happened that I, I i almost feel res. i almost feel like responsible to pay attention because so many people died and suffered and and are still suffering i think yeah but as as the show goes i mean that's such a great scene and the guy who plays Gorbachev, I don't know who he is, but my God, what an, inc- there's that moment where he kind of starts to put his hands together and doesn't. And then, and then collects himself for a second and then asks another question. That little moment says everything. I mean, this is the guy, this is the guy, right? He could, he's like the the top guy and he's supposed to have it all together. And the only moment when you feel like he doesn't is that moment where he's just like, I really don't know what to do. I don't even, do I put my, what do I do with my hands? You know? <laughs> uh, and, and so it was great acting. And then Stellan Skarsgård, like, <laughs> can we, he needs like uh, a I, lifetime I, achievement award
2: already. I know he's still kind of young for it, but I think he's earned it. <laughs> that
0: guy. Right. Uh I mean, I don't I can't even put into I can't even put into words like how I the multiple layers that you get from not just him, not just him, I would say, but like Jared Harris and like every everybody is just incredible. And the way that he delivers his mat, he's very matter of fact in how he delivers what's going to happen in that scene specifically. You know, when Gorbachev says there's 50 million people. 60, actually, like, whoa, you know, just very matter of fact, like this is going to happen. And he could have been he could have delivered it a lot more somber, you know, or a lot more aggressive, like do something. We need to do something now. But he was just very stoic and and which I would imagine you'd have to be in the USSR Mm -hmm. at that time in front of Gorbachev. Very respectful. And you just have to be. But. Anyway, the way that this was, the whole thing was told was just brilliant. Uh, and then in the end, they tell you a lot about it, you know, at the end of the, that last episode that uh, Jesse Buckley, is it? No, no, no. It's uh, Emily Watson's character is supposed to represent the people. I thought that was how brilliant, you know, everybody else is like a character like was a part of this and, and did a lot of these things. I'm sure some of it was, I'm sure some of it was for the show, but a lot of these things really did happen but to add someone who is the voice of the people who won't quit trying to find the, the trying to bring people to justice to convince Legosov to, to tell the truth and um, at the hearing and to have that is such a wonderful way to honor the people that have either died or just suffered or gone through this, you know, or at least uh, even who have just been displaced. What a wonderful touch there. Uh, I thought that, the way that they showed the uh, radiation poisoning was some of the most brutal makeup design I've ever seen. Right. There was not an ounce of me that didn't believe that that was real. Yeah. Every fire. Right.
2: I'm looking away every single time. I'm like, I just can't, I can't look at these people. I know it's makeup. I know this is the stuff that's, doesn't really bother me like makeup, visual effects. I'm like, it's fine. Let me see heads exploding all day. It's, it's whatever, hilarious or whatever. I can't watch surgeries. That's me. I I really can't watch like surgeries and medical stuff that gets to me. Yeah. Chop off an arm with a chainsaw, you know, cool, you know, hilarious or whatever, like uh, more blood, you know, and, and this, I just, because it's based on reality, because like you're saying, the, the makeup work is so unbelievable. It probably is the best I've ever seen yeah. too. God.
0: Yeah. It was painful, painfully brutal. And the, I mean, the wife refusing to not be near her husband. That was brutal too. Knowing she was pregnant, him putting his hand on her belt, like all of this, they had no idea, you know, they just didn't, they didn't know. And it's so, it's just, a, it's so brutal. And then, uh, I remember after I watched it the first time back when it came out i I went and did research about it just because I was like i I wanted to know more like is this it, what's happening now you know and um, they recently built a new structure and they had to build it off site and then roll it onto the actual oh wow. uh, yeah, over the actual site, and there's you know video and pictures of it online, and it's just amazing for like hundreds of years, it's going to be uninhabited. And I was talking to my neighbor about it actually. And he said, you know, it's funny. You know, I, I used to work on a show where uh, it was like a wilderness show. And so we had to like do a bunch of research and stuff about like places. And it's interesting because in that area in Chernobyl, you know, there's no people. Mm -hmm. So because there's no people, the landscape is very lush and the animals are they run the place obviously it's like eden it's like a garden of eden now some of them you know are doing better than others right (laughs) Right? with the radiation but but because humans aren't messing with the the area it's like just this kind of like yeah like an eden you know it's
2: it's like a preserve
0: almost exactly like a preserve which is hilarious almost hilarious (laughs) right uh anyway the the acting is incredible. The writing is otherworldly, and um, it just it takes you on a on a journey. And the whole time you're just trying to understand what could have gone wrong. And they slowly reveal it, and they slowly reveal it uh, a little bit here, a little bit there, but not too much. And they ha- they just show you agony after agony, and then at the end they give you everything you need to know, and they do it in such a a way where you actually understand it and hate the people who made it happen, you know, hate the situation that made it happen. So yeah, absolutely timeless. Yeah. I could watch it again right now, even though it's so brutal Same. that that
2: was the kind of crazy part is because I watched this twice this week. I think I watched it on Tuesday and Wednesday and then finally forced myself to start rewatching it again last night and finished it this morning right before, you know, recording. And once you hit play, you're in like, you really don't want to look away. It's just so engrossing, and for me, this hits on so many things that I'm passionate about and that I love, which is just kind of strange to find in like a, a show like this. You know, the science aspect. Is we both are like super nerds and and really love learning and and hearing you know these discussions and these conversations and um and so the, the that whole aspect um of not just hearing about the science, but also seeing it described and broken down to people who don't understand in ways that they can, which is really convenient, um, devising for your audience, right? Because on the one hand, those characters really do need to know that that conversation really does need to happen, but you also need to educate the audience so that we can be aware of the stakes and what's going on as well. So that's like the a most perfect situation for a writer to, to find themselves in of like, because that exposition is always the hardest thing to do anyway. Uh, but whenever it's literally built into the story, now you can be as dumbed down as you possibly want because it benefits everyone. It benefits the story and it benefits the audience. Um, and so that's just a really kind of magical element of this, of, of telling the story. And it also gets into, you know, the, the search for truth. Um, and I'm big on that. I'm, I'm really big on like journalism stories. And there's this kind of undertow of journalistic integ- integrity, happening, uh, as Ulana is trying to figure out what really happened and she's carrying out her own investigation. Um, and then, you know, there's that moment of course, where they need to decide now that we know the truth, do we tell the truth? And then that gets to the other part that I really love, which is speaking truth to power. Good journalism is all about speaking truth to power. It's not about digging up, you know, some low grade indefensible person, (laughs) you know, to, to carry out a witch hunt and make yourself feel good. It's about actually toppling power structures, um, or holding them accountable, whichever works best. If you can't be held accountable, then maybe you should be toppled to some degree or another. And this is all about that. This is all about finding integrity in a system that really discourages it. (laughs) And that's, that's a human universal truth, too. I think we all feel that. there I'm, I'm sure there's not a soul in Russia who doesn't connect with that. Um, and how many American stories have we seen about government cover ups and um, whistleblowing? And I love all those, too. And so this is kind of combining all those elements into one. And then, of course, you know, just the people who are paying the real cost are the ones who actually come together and the ones who actually care, which is again another reflection of reality Um, you have people at the top who often don't really care about what happens underneath Uh, in this case it's a little give and take some of that is true some of it's not you never got the sense from Gorbachev that he didn't care Um, you never got the sense from Boris that he didn't care but of course the people who didn't care were the people who were responsible for Chernobyl in the first place right and so it's just this beautiful tangled web of humanity, uh, woven throughout this entire five episode, you know, uh, story. And it's hard for me to look away because all any given moment is going to be compelling to me for all of those reasons. Yeah. I, I was smitten. I same. I don't know if you waited until it was all out before you finally got to it. Um, for me, I was mm-hmm. watching it week by week. And so there's that moment at the end of episode two, right? Where they go in to the, uh, underneath the, the, the reactor oh, yeah. or whatever, and the lights cut out and, and now you got to wait a week <laughs> and that was oh. rough. Oh, so rough. <laughs> I've for years now, I've had this curiosity about when the power gets low, does the, the battery indicator turn red or does it just turn off? A little status update. It does not turn red. <laughs> it just turns off. <laughs> it just turns off.
0: <laughs> Noted
2: got it so we are back sorry uh uh there was a power shortage apparently <laughs> <laughs> no, explosion, no explosion though. no right? explosion just a dead battery um, all right yeah <laughs>
0: the end of episode two
2: end of episode two hits and the, those lights go out the geiger counter is going off or whatever uh the oh my god the, that's so stressful simulator and uh it's just perfectly stressful yeah um and then waiting to see what happens next that was definitely one of those moments where you're like i need to talk to
0: someone about this um because <laughs> well it's, it's also a great like um a great way of of showing how information is is dispersed like in real in real time so you have the people that are experiencing it you have the people who don't who are outside fighting it, who don't really know what's going on. You have the people watching from the bridge who have even less idea what's going on. Then you have these upper management people who also don't know what's going on because they're being told information that is not accurate because the people that should know can't believe what they're being told. So it's all of these different points of view that don't know at all what's going on. Nobody knows that the react for uh, at least, you know, first episode or whatever. Nobody knows that the reactors actually exploded, except for maybe like a couple of people. And then nobody believes them. And then it takes forever for anyone else to believe that the reactor actually exploded like forever. And you're just sitting here. Why can't you just believe this person who said that I saw an open reactor? Like, why? Why would they say otherwise? You know? It's just it's like an incredible story of way to show, you know, people multiple points of view with multiple pieces of information and understanding that why those people would stand on the bridge. They don't know that it's exploded, that it's like the reactor is exploded. They just think it's a fire, you know, like the people fighting the fire. They don't know that the react. It's the reactor. They they just think it's a fire and that's what they're doing. It's their job. Like so. Anyway, that's kind of one of the beautiful things
2: is like every single moment of like ignorance or hubris is fraught with what we already know about radiation that they don't. Right. That's the dramatic yeah. irony that you know the the Craig Mazin was able to really take advantage of um is what we know versus what our characters know, um, and that's just. A Beautiful execution, right? The bridge scene that you're talking about, right? With Like the nuclear ash kind of look. I don't know what was actually going on there, but that's what it made me think is nuclear fallout. And it's just horrifying, right? We have all this creeping dread and horror constantly through this show, especially those first couple episodes. the The ignorance and willful denials coming from everyone. Like the ignorance of the, there's that moment in the Chernobyl doctor's office, right? Where there's that exchange between, I don't know if there were two doctors or a nurse and a doctor, but she's asking him, she sees the explosion. She's like, "Uh, where do we keep our iodine pills? He's like, we don't, we don't need iodine. Why would we need iodine pills? And the reaction on her face of just like, oh my God. Like she is completely confounded at his ignorance. Um, and we all generally understand iodine helps, you know, uh, reduce radiation risk and, and, you know, negates it or however exactly that operates. I don't know. Um, clearly. And it's just a beautiful use of uh, dramatic irony running throughout the the show. And, and then some, t- some cases it's, you know, just, just setting it up, setting up in like tension is here for you. Uh and, it helps whenever you set it up beforehand instead of waiting till after so you have that moment uh in an episode whatever it was uh four i think four where they're discussing how to get the the debris off the roofs and what does uh, uh say under no circumstances can a man go up on that roof we're making it very clear you don't do this that's a hard line in the sand And of course it sets up so much tension so that when we do finally start sending guys up there, we understand this is worst case possible. Like this is, we tried to avoid this and these guys are going to pay the cost now. And same thing when they're taking off like the radiated clothes from the the firefighters, there's that brief moment before she starts doing it. She declares their clothes are contaminated, right? They're, They're radiated. And then she starts ripping it off with her bare hands. And there's so much tension as we're now watching her do the thing, um, because they set that up really nicely and, and uh, earlier in the film where that guy picks up the the graphite off the ground. Oh, my God. And so now we've seen what happens when you hold radiation in your hand, and now we're watching her do a, another version of it, and all you can do is just tense and try
0: your best uh, to not look away. And not only do we see that, but later we hear them say what that was the equivalent of. Oof they at one point someone says oh it's the equivalent of you know i don't know 400 x-rays he's like no it's the equivalent of 4 million x-rays oh i mean <laughs> yeah that's okay so and then of course she does she dumps the, the the clothes in the
2: basement and then we look at her hand and it's calling right back to the the graphite guy and it's just un un uh, It's so bad. The, the other thing they do really well is analogies. They're just constantly throwing out analogies and that's to help us understand. Right. And as he's trying to explain to like Gorbachev and everyone, and what does he say? Like bullets, radiation is like bullets and they're just shooting and nothing stops them. Not concrete, not steel, not your body, right? They're just going to keep going. Now you have a very visceral understanding of, what happens whenever you're dealing with this stuff, you're getting shot with millions and billions of bullets at the same time. Same thing with like the lava analogy that he uses as the core is melting down now. And it's just helping to deconstruct these really complex topics, but also creates a very visual way for encountering these moments. So as these things are happening, we very clearly have these guys underneath this thing or sitting underneath the lava that's trying to get down to them. That's easy to hold in your head. We don't need a lot. It's just beautiful. Like the equivalent of two Hiroshima bombs every hour, hour after hour, 24 hours a day. Uh, we've had 20 hours so far. So that's 40 bombs tomorrow. There will be another 24 hours. That's 48 bombs and day after day, month after month. And it won't stop, begin to stop for a hundred years. It's just like, Oh, um, and then you'll see the, the continent itself will be killed. Like, okay, so you're saying we should take this serious. But the nice thing of hearing something like that is afterwards, every time they show the clock on the screen of how many, how many hours have elapsed, we can double that. And it's just dread. We start to feel viscerally like every moment that passes that this thing isn't fixed is death. And it's just beautiful setups. Uh, And Ludmilla, Ludmilla, how were you saying that? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Sure. <laughs> Lumilla, uh, uh, she's like the interactions between her and her husband breathes in like this personal side of the tragedy because now we're putting real lives in our minds instead of like for lack of a better way of of putting it these cogs in the machine right these people yeah. that are all in uniforms and they have masks on and they have uh, all this gear they all kind of look the same they do start to feel like cogs in the machine even though we know these are people And that's very well emphasized throughout the show. Like these are people with human lives are at, are at risk here. Um, But using Ludmilla uh, is really good because now we see them, her and her husband starting their lives together and planning a future that's cut short in the most horrific way possible. That's so much more engaging on the emotional side uh, because it's hard to keep track of the husband due to his physical deterioration, but it's really easy to keep track of her. She has a very distinct look, right? Um, and now we can identify with her and the pain of, uh, and horror of seeing her husband dying. Cause that's okay. Now we have something to connect with, um, on a, you know, very simple level, but in episode three, he dies and that's brutal. They bury him right in this lead coffin covered in concrete. Like it's just, so after that, how do you make it hurt again? When we've been watching so much brutal human death. Right. We watched a a woman lose her husband buried in the worst way imaginable. You'll never find that guy again. Like Mm -hmm. that's. And then how do you resensitize us? I tell you how in episode four, we start killing puppies and babies. And that's the kind of thing as a writer, you don't want to do, but this is the story. And now if you're trying to make sure people are emotionally engaging with it, uh after you've rubbed their nerves off for three episodes, you need to tell them the other truths that are out there that will resensitize them to the tragedy. Um and that's a very low-hanging fruit and I don't think exploitative at all. Um in other films and, and, I would And how it,
0: they do that sorry and how they do that is amazing. That one single shot tracking through the through the the hospital you see bit crying babies crying babies and then you see an empty bassinet and her just sitting there staring off into nothing. You don't even see her face at, that's it. That's all you've got to do. It's, it's so understated and perfect, you know, like you can write that and it, it hurts to write, but you're totally right on that, that it's, you, you have to, you have to go to that level because that's what people dealt with and went through. But how you do it says a lot about the story that you're telling and how they did. It was fantastic. We're like, you know, we've, we've shown you so much gore, And so much brutality, you know, you don't need to see the baby going through that. You can see the mother going through the aftermath of that because that's who we've been with. We haven't been with the baby. We haven't identified with the baby. You know, it hasn't been. It's just been something that's been inside her. And now it's not. And it's gone. And that's all you need to show. Anyway, great Uh, point.
2: And then we start shooting dogs, which is interesting, too, because we never actually see... A dog die the closest we get is to see one dog shot but he's still alive and breathing um and what i find interesting is we have a man's best friend you know it is, is, is just seems to be accurate because we have a much worse reaction to watching animals killed like dogs specifically than we do of watching all these people die of radiation sickness like that's wild but We also like start to engage with Pavel, right? He's the animal control kid that's new and taking on this thing that he's not trained for. He doesn't even know how to load a gun. And here he is. He's got to start killing animals left and right. And it's such a great sequence. Uh, I love the tension they set up with this guy, uh, his boss. uh, uh, I didn't write his name down, but his his leader, um, who's phenomenal. God, every actor in here is just crushing it. And he tells him, right? I have two rules. Don't point your gun at me. Don't let them suffer. Don't let them suffer. And he kind of leans back into him, like, I will kill you. Okay. And the guy, he shoots a look to the guy, and the guy's like, Yeah, yeah, he'll probably kill you. <laughs> He's like, Yeah, okay. He was like, Good. And then. He's like the one piece of comic relief. Right. <laughs> you know? It's very few and far between. What do you mean yeah. Russians are hilarious, Todd? Um, uh, and so, uh, haven't you read Tolstoy? And so, <laughs> and so, um, they, they, first thing they do is show this kid finally shooting a dog. Um, and there's a couple of things that happen here. He shoots the dog. And as he, sh- when he goes to shoot the dog, we watch that happen from the doorway of the house and we're pulling back into the house. And that's such a Beautiful shot. It's such a simple idea that they're doing here is we are retreating inwards visually as we're watching him shoot. Normally, if someone's making their mind up to do a thing, you push into that. You watch the determination come over their face, right? And you, you, you dial in as they're dialing in. And instead the exact opposite is happening. We're pulling away, not just pulling away. We're pulling into a house. And so it's the emotional reflection of what this kid is experiencing. He is retreating inwards as he's doing this thing. And it's such a simple, beautiful execution of an idea of an emotion uh, because what happens in the next scene, it's time to eat. It's lunchtime. He won't eat and he doesn't speak. The uh, His boss is over there trying to talk to him and engage with him and tell him it's okay. Like I've killed a lot of men. And just because your first time was a dog doesn't make you less of a man. Like it's all the same to, to some degree or another taking life is never good. Um, and it's just this beautiful thing. But the other thing is the tension that it sets up as he's walking after he shoots the dog, right. He walks up on him and he's trying to figure out like, what do I do? And, um, and then back of our mind, we saw a line get drawn in the sand, right? Like your life is about to be forfeit, buddy. Um, And then of course the very next person we see is the boss. And he's like, Hey, gets in his face, but he also, he's a human. He sees what this kid is going through. And he's like, boom, don't let them suffer. And he's like, okay, bro. And then of course uh, not long after that, like, how do you keep ramping up the stakes? Well, instead of a dog, how about a, a mother and her litter, Okay. Yeah. This it's just oh, how can we turn, twist the screw just a little bit more, um, and in, and in, into your innards, I guess. But it's
0: it's all <clears throat> the way that they do it. A lot of it could be unbelievable, and the way that they do it is so human. It just feels it feels real. It feels like it really happened, and I I really think that Craig Mazin like did a lot of research about what actually happened about what people actually had to do about what people actually went through and, and was, was a genius in crafting scenarios that would be believable. Not, not anything, you know, I think it's so easy, probably, I don't know. I think I would imagine it'd be so easy as a writer to find just the biggest, most unbelievable scenarios, right. You know, and throw those in there. Like I feel like what Craig was doing was trying to find the most human scenarios and, or at least, at least take a scenario that even might've been like way worse. And how do I humanize this? How do I turn this into something that, that everyone can see, not necessarily relate to, but just be impacted by, even if that means that it's less gory, you know, or I show less, Mm -hmm. right? It was, it's just, There's no need necessarily to show this kid having to learn how to kill dogs. But I guarantee that that happened, you know, whether it was a kid or not, who knows, maybe he made it a kid and, you know, and Mm. for us to feel that impact of this child now having to grow up real quick, you know, and having to do something as difficult as that it's I mean, it's an incredible writing on that front. I completely agree.
2: Like I, to what degree some things are true is actually really interesting. Um, If y'all haven't, if you haven't uh, listened to the the Chernobyl podcast, he goes on. That's right. I forgot about that. It's so incredible because he will start telling you things like at times I had to actually tamp it down. Oh, okay. See? All right. Yeah. I had to play it down just because at a certain point you just start to really? And it's like, actually, it was way worse than that. Um, I needed to make sure I could bring the audience along or else yeah, uh, you just lose
0: the suspension of disbelief by telling the truth. Sometimes I have so much respect for a writer in that regard. Like in, in today's in in today's society, like, I feel like worse is always if I could if we can make it worse, if we can make it gorier, if we can make it more aggressive, if we can make it more stimulating, you got to do that to have the foresight and and the respect for the audience and the respect for the craft to say, no, this is, I need to tell this story, stay in this lane, do these things, keep the feel like this. And even if that means, you know, pulling it back a little bit, wow, what respect you got to have for a writer like that. Absolutely. And the way I think he structured this whole
2: thing was just brilliant. Whenever you're dealing with, you know, an event like this, there's, I think, In my mind, anyway, there's two ways you can approach it. Start with the event or end with the event. Um, You can build up to it, right? The Titanic builds up to it. Great point. Or you can start with it and then discuss the aftermath. And this started with it. It kind of did both to some degree. um, And it was just brilliant. But starting us after the explosion, and that's the the interesting thing, is we don't actually see the... Well, we do. That's like the first thing we see from the window pane of... Ludmilla and her husband, and then he's got to go fight the fire, but we don't really know what happened until the end. Um, But starting us right after the explosion puts us in really great suspense. That would be lessened. I think with starting with the run-up of the test. And I think that's the interesting thing um, is holding the run-up of the test itself until afterwards. It adds so much more tension when we finally do start seeing the test in that fifth episode, because now we're anticipating the explosion. And after seeing all the damage that comes after, right, we're just, we're imagining and we're wanting, we're almost screaming at the person to not go through that door, right? Like, guys, no, you know, and it just kicks in this other layer of disbelief about everything you just watched, especially if you were to kind of stitch those two scenes together of the episode one and episode five. Because in episode one, you're seeing everyone's reaction to, the, the the core is exposed and he's like there's no way whereas if you were to see that run up you'd you would certainly hate Dyatlov even more but you almost wouldn't buy into the reality of what actually happened in that room it's just so unbelievable it's just the the amount of hubris at play is un I can't even fathom it but so it is sometimes with with the wrong people, with the wrong amount of knowledge. Um, Cause he was under the impression he knew everything and he didn't. Um, yeah. And right. The best scientists never assume they know everything, um, but they do work with what they have, the information they have. And then they shape all of that
0: based on new data. And that guy got a bunch of new data and he said, yeah. no, we're good. Well, you know, and unfortunately, you know, like it was all, it was such a perfect storm of all this stuff because as they call out in the show, this had happened they knew this. The government knew that this could have, this could type of thing could have happened, um, but they did nothing about it. And so Diatlov didn't necessarily have that information, but he had all the surrounding information, you know, and he ignored it. And he even had, it was, I'm not sure if that actually happened, but he had the, the guy with the glasses saying, we've got to shut down, we've got to shut down. And then he would yell at him, no, don't. So yeah, he had all the information he needed, and, and just piled, like drove forward, uh, you know, yeah, into oblivion. I guess.
2: Yeah, it's the the other poison well uh, is ambition, right? This guy was mm-hmm. just trying to think about how to get ahead, and he always thought in the back of his mind he had this failsafe, um, that of course became the detonator, on. Um, but there's so many threats throughout the show. I mean obviously there's threats from radiation, but the other threat is of course from authority and government. And that's what Diatlov was really wielding is this, there's this threat of violence that underpins every authority figures commands, right? You have Boris even in the helicopter where he's trying to get uh, Lagasse to tell him how a nuclear reactor works, right? And he's like, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't understand. And he's like, tell me or I'll have one of these men throw you out of the helicopter and even also takes a moment to look at these guys and all right, well, here's how it operates. And then afterwards, right. He, he tells them great. Now I know how a nuclear reactor works. I don't need you anymore. And it's just this very, not so subtle threat to uh, stay in line or guess what happens. Right. But throughout the whole film or the show, everything's like that between that. And uh, even, even Ulana you know, says as much when she's talking to Diatlov and trying to get him to to give her the information uh, that she's looking for, uh, she tells him, I'm your best chance to avoid a bullet. And so throughout the entire show, in just general knowledge of this era of Russian politics, and I mean probably still ongoing is my impression. I don't know anything uh in particular. Um, but there's always this threat of violence from uh the authority figures. And and so throughout the, the show too, everyone's guard is always up. Everyone's afraid of making a slip. And so sometimes you're looking at someone who looks like an authority figure, but is really just covering their own ass. Um, when Ulana's is trying to check out all these books or reports or whatever, she makes that list and she hands it to, uh, the woman and the woman hands it to her boss. And, uh, this guy marks off almost all of them except one. And then she's, Going to get that book, and uh, Ulana is looking at the boss, and he's neutral. Part of him, you can read his expression however you want. It's neutral, it's, you know, uh, seeing into her soul, um, it's guarded, it's all those things. Because for his perspective, maybe he doesn't know if that's a test. Like maybe he's being tested right now, um, yeah. and he's got to toe the company line. Like all of that, all that subversive ideology is always at play with every character on every level. Probably even Gorbachev is over there looking at how to cover his own back because he doesn't know if the men in this room are ambitious, right? All of it's bad. All of it's poison. But this makes hunting for the truth so much more meaningful, right? The stakes are so much higher to just ask questions. Not even getting to publicly declaring anything that goes against leadership. That's certain death. Right. Um, and so you just don't know when the consequence is going to be born. And and that's just an ever present cloud hanging over everyone. But along the way, from the beginning, all dissent, all dissent is ridiculed and berated. Like at no point does anyone say, boss, you're wrong. Why? Thank you. Let's improve ourselves. <laughs> like, like that's not the attitude. Uh, it's like, you're an idiot. Do your job. Um, what did you do? He's giving people commands, and when they do them, it's their fault, right? Yeah, uh, it's just the worst boss. Constantly, every boss is the
0: worst boss. Yeah, except for and it only it develops is Valery and Boris's relationship throughout the the show, and then then they have that amazing scene in the middle of the of the in the the recess of the 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 trial where Valery walks up to Boris and Boris just. Thinks that he's wasted his life and he's nothing. And Valeri says, "Actually, you're the hero. You know, I'm. I have the knowledge, but without the action, without someone to make to get me everything I needed, that it would never have happened. You actually did this. I think it's also it's for us too. As, a, as I felt like it was for me as a viewer, of saying how important uh, Boris was." Stellan Skarsgård's character, how important he was to this story, because at first he's a bad guy. At first he's like a, he's like, I don't believe you, Valeri, you know, you're full of shit. And, and, you know, I know more than you. And he's part of the establishment. He's part of the, of the USSR. And then he become, he, they become friends and, and they learn from each other. And I think Boris learns how to navigate the government, the governmental side a lot more from valeri and valeri learns how to kind of how to like listen better and to to be a student instead of just thinking that he's the he knows everything because he has the the title you know like they just become good friends you inverted those uh um, did i oh yeah yeah, yeah sorry yeah, yeah. i inverted those you know what i mean yeah you know what i mean boris become like learns from valeri how to be mm-hmm. uh how to be a student and valeri- yeah
2: I think you're absolutely right. Like their relationship dynamic is so good. Um and it starts with the phone call actually in episode 1 at the end of the episode, yeah. right? Uh Boris calls Lagasov and Lagasov is on the phone trying to raise concerns immediately about potential radiation levels as he's just learning about the the whole situation. He's already thinking like, "Oh crap. Well, we should be aware of like if radiation levels and what is, what happens?" Boris cuts him off immediately, right? his authoritarian mentality ultimately may have cost him his life. Cause if he had listened at that point, maybe he's not the man on the ground. Now maybe that turns out worse for everyone, but his unwillingness to even listen from the get go could be, a, you know, culpable uh, on, on his part about what actually happens for him in his life. But they go uh, into that meeting and um, he gets embarrassed, right. Uh, in front of Gorbachev as he uh, Valeri, you know, pauses everyone the meeting's being adjourned and he's like no and he's like sorry sorry <laughs> uh not good graphite on the ground and then he starts losing his mind and um finally he convinces everyone to take this seriously but then to go back to what you were talking about the the trial they had that moment and it's such a good moment and he's just talking about how impossible like the whole apparatus is of leviathan um that's kind of the the, the the term people use about the Russian government as this like thing that strangles and chokes and extends into all everywhere. It just gets everywhere. And uh, he tells Boris, uh, the tells Boris, they accidentally sent the best man. This is paraphrase, but you were the only one everyone listened to as you were just saying. Right. Um, And so what happens right after that, they go back into the trial and once again, it's a it's a beautiful inversion of that first scene in front of Gorbachev because now they're in the trial and everyone's trying to leave before they get to the truth, and that's finally when Boris does stand up. He does what yeah. Gorbachev did. He stands up and he says, "Let him speak." Right, and it's just this beautiful completion of their relationship um, to every to underscore everything you said because their relationship it develops, and I think you're right about the of learning a bit more about how to manage or deal with leadership. Uh, yeah, that's deal with, but he also can't, he, he also can't help himself. He knows what yeah, he knows. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I think the, uh, the other thing that, that jumps out to me, cinematography wise, I mean, the whole show is like a lot of slow camera moves. It's very patient. Uh, and it just kind of grounds you a lot. Um, and gives you an opportunity to see everything that's going on. Um, but the opening I thought was just really interesting. Cause it opens on the gossip in his apartment about to kill himself. And the background, the atmosphere is very green. All the lighting is very, very green, but he himself is kind of lit purplish. And it just feels everything in that room feels radioactive and diseased on a pure vis- visual level. And it's nice, uh, I guess tuning into Chernobyl, you want that opening scene to feel like the result of something that we've experienced, especially when you're starting at the end like this. And then the other thing that caught my eye cinematography wise is Ludmilla whenever she finally gets to the hospital in Moscow and she hugs her husband, husband, right? There's that slow motion thing that kicks in. We go handheld. We're spinning around them a little bit and then they start lens flaring, right? To to denote, the radiation poisoning. um, Right. And we, we know off the look that she gave that nurse that she is pregnant. She just lied about being pregnant. And that's a simple, we have a quick denial, maybe a little too fast. Me think, you know, the lady death protest too much kind of thing. And then we hold on her as she gets this worried look on her face. And then we just implicitly know she freaking is pregnant. You just don't do it. And that kicks in all the other things we're talking about, the tension and uh, dramatic irony. And, that flaring though is really interesting. My impression is that it's probably done in post. I don't know that. Maybe they just had really, really good lenses that, because one of the things is I don't know where that flaring source would be coming from within the room. Now you can, it's not to say you can't set it up off camera, but the way the camera just kind of keeps spinning around, it feels a little too loose, but that's also why you rehearse and block and all that stuff. But the timing also seems really intentional with the edit, but the camera s- covers so much ground. I don't know. Uh, but the, the thing that really makes me think that this is a post effect is I'm not seeing any f- smearing on the lens. Um, so if you ever see like a matte box around the lens or a lens hood um, that kind of puts up this black barrier uh, in front of the lens, that's to prevent flaring happening. Because if you want flaring, you want you want to be intentional about it. Uh, Because if you don't want flaring and you get flaring, what's happening is your lens is getting smeared with light and it's reducing the contrast of your image. Um, And it's just, it makes things not pop as strongly as you want them to. Um, There's a simple test you can always do uh, where you go outside, right? And you shoot into the sun, maybe not directly at the sun, but like shoot someone uh, or a landscape, with the sun kind of flaring in the edge of the, of the frame. Um, And then shoot that same shot again, except block out the the sun with your hand and just look at the before and after of that image. And you're going to be like, Oh, wow. The the light is smearing your, your, your lens. And it's just, you know, completely degrading all the the textures and subtleties that are, you're trying to capture Uh, because that's all your camera's doing, right? It's just capturing light. Um, and so the cleaner you can make that light coming from the objects that you want to capture the better, um, because now you're just getting a straight capture of the light reflecting off those objects. Whereas if you introduce a new light that you don't want to capture, all that other light is being disrupted. And now it's just getting smeared around, um, in, in ways that you may not find desirable. And so I don't know if maybe that's just badass lens or some kind of coating on their lens. I don't know. I, that gets a little bit beyond my, my technical knowledge of how some lens are constructed because there's a lot of different ways to coat and, and set up your lens. Um, and But my impression is they did it in post, which is kind of an interesting thing to me. If so, just because they have all the budget in the world. like They could have done that. But I think to do all the best things, keep on schedule, get the timing, get the look just right that you want. Maybe it's just quicker and easier um, and gives you the polish that you want as well as retaining the the quality of your image. Again, the smearing could degrade their image. Um, and so I would imagine they did it in post for all those reasons. Uh, great amount of control um, that that you can just do in post instead. Um, yeah, but most things, it's just rare I feel like to see that in a, a high quality production like you go watch star trek right the the jj abrams reboot and you're flaring all over in fact they had to go and remove flares cuz it was like oh, it was just too much um but really? you can see I didn't all, know that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow yeah, he he felt like maybe he went overboard that time um yeah <laughs> So my last couple of thoughts, uh, maybe, I don't know. I have so many other notes. I know, man, we could talk about this (laughs) for a long time, Uh, but the simple stuff, there's some simple, I say simple. There's some effects that I just thought are really, really cool for lack of a better term. Um, For one, the era and the setting provide so much visual drama, Um, right? The radiation suits, the uniforms, The cleaning materials themselves, the building architecture and the set designs, the props lean into it. Like you don't really need to add too much extra visual drama if you don't want to, because it's all provided through being in the eighties in Russia at a nuclear plant, having a meltdown. (laughs) Like what more do you actually need? Just do the normal stuff, use the wardrobe, but then, whenever you do want to add some flair, then there's a lot of opportunity. And one of my favorite things they did that is just gut wrenching um, is this gag in the. Uh, and this is what you call it. you call it a gag. Gags, I know we use as like comedy uh, on set. You say gag to denote some kind of physical uh, special effect or some prop element. Um, or it's, it's it covers a lot of ground. Gag covers a lot of ground uh, in production. And so in this case, I'm talking about there's a bleeding gag. In the first episode, as that guy is walking out of the the chamber, uh, the reactor core, right, and uh, oh, yeah. he starts bleeding through his his uh, his lab coat, and it's just amazing. It's so awful to see, um, but it's beautiful. Like he, it's he stops right. Pause. We're going to really emphasize what's happening here by letting him stop. He's going to look down to direct our attention down. What is he looking at? Oh, he's looking at his uniform. And then we're just going to let blood seep through the white lab coat. Like the props created this potential and they just got every ounce of disgusting out of it. Um, Because if your heart doesn't drop, uh, you're just not watching the show. I don't know what to say, but uh, that was just a beautiful gag there. Um, How was your
0: reaction to that, Todd? I mean, yeah, like, like I, I think the biggest part of it was the, the biggest thing that I got from it was the immediacy of it, right? Because, you know, you all, we had already had, I think at that point, we had the guy who picked up the picked up the graphite and then his hand, you know, is burned or whatever. But he picked it up. We cut away. Stuff happened. And then we see him on the ground screaming like a little while later. This was almost instantaneous. I mean, he's holding the door open. They go in, we come back he lets the door go and we see him bleeding already and so it's it's just it i don't know it just showed me how immediate this really is and how it's not just the graphite it's also the building itself um that is radioactive and if you touch anything or just in there it, i think it what it did for me was it taught me it it taught me that all of these people will die very soon you know whether they whether they get out of the building or not it doesn't matter they are all dead and so from that point on everybody that i saw i just see as they're all dead now hmm. because of this so everybody i see on screen is dead that one scene that one moment of seeing him bleed through that like made me think oh everyone's gonna die so yeah it was pretty <laughs> it was pretty intense oh <laughs> uh. yeah The
2: other simple thing they did, um, and you, you are forced to use it. Don't get me wrong, but they leaned into it so wonderfully, uh, which is the radiation detectors have such a specific noise. we understand what it means when we hear it on a visceral level. It's just sickening. It's, it's absolute, you know, and so ending an episode like that, maximizing your tension and, and, you know, your pull on the audience. Just use it like it's oh. the other thing. Was there's an awful lot of smoking throughout the film, and maybe someone should warn them about that. I'm just <laughs> kidding, <laughs> yeah. But they do kind of like linger on a lot of cigarette shots, the ashtrays. Um, and I think there is this also implied element of poisoning ourselves, right? Um, cancer because radiation and cancer go hand in hand, and using cigarettes as another shorthand. Of cancer. You know, whenever we're watching some of these characters smoke, we're immediately thinking about cancer in their life uh, being terminated early. Um, and so it's a very simple, easy visual cue. Um, as well as, I mean, in this era, everyone was smoking. Um, and it just visually helps, you know, keep your characters active and doing things and um, is in some ways simple little character dramas, right? You have, the, the minor, right. That goes into the office and he grabs a cigarette and, um, you're just through smoking. He's able to demonstrate his confidence and his swagger and how much he really doesn't care about these guys. Like he is his own person. He's going to do what he thinks is best for his men. Um, and you can, you know, subtly communicate a lot of these things just through something as simple as smoking. Yeah. Props props do a lot for you. Um, yeah. I don't know, man. I, I literally have a whole other page of notes that I didn't throw into my, my collection, but all good. I think we can, we can call it there. What, uh, final thoughts? Let me, let me do that instead.
0: Uh, it's, it's, uh, perfectly made. I uh, I wouldn't change anything. Um, I've been, I was watching it trying to think, okay, what would I do different? I thought that the camera moves were fantastic. Great point about the, you know, the, the, that one shot of pulling back, um, uh, on, on the kid as he was shooting the dog. And, um, I thought the camera work was fantastic. I thought the acting was otherworldly. I thought the writing was wonderful, um, in so many ways. And I felt the weight of every decision or non-decision in this, um, in this show. And it was just masterfully executed. I think, I really think that like, I just wish that I'm just going to call them out. I just wish that Netflix would take notes from something like this because like look, I I go on Netflix like everybody else and I look for new things being released and I look and see what they're making and all that stuff and but n- nowhere in any any corner of of their catalog. Do they have anything even close to something like this? And I think that HBO has other things that are close to it. I mean, I don't think anything is close to Chernobyl. I think it's like it's, just the best. It's singular, yeah. But just the production value and the way that it's executed and the level of detail and editing. That's one thing we didn't talk about is the editing of this, right? Like, I, th- I think it was probably shot for the edit. It feels like it was shot for the edit. Agreed. But, um, which for people who might not know, that's that's, you're shooting exactly what you're trying to, you know what you're getting in the edit you know with what you're shooting instead of shooting and then hoping that the edit will pull it out right you
2: know? or just cuz the the normal way a lot of productions work is we'll get coverage and to todd's point you work it out and just hope that all of that pays off and maybe you get one or two specialty shots for a scene like we're going to get this moment but otherwise you just get your wide get your master get your mediums get your close-ups and then we're out like, okay
0: yeah 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 and uh, so anyway i i i, I don't I don't pretend to know the difference between making a Chernobyl and making some like a an HBO ver, Max version and making a a Netflix version. Like what would it look like if Netflix made this? Nothing like this. It would be nothing like it. And so whatever the difference is, they need to figure that out because this is what is timeless. Yeah. This thing is just timeless. In 30 years I will watch this and be like that is incredible. It's just incredible. I can already tell you that now. And I just think that that needs to be celebrated. It's absolutely amazing.
2: So. Completely agree. Yes. Two thoughts and responses to that on the one hand. Please. I agree. And I don't think it's necessarily a fault of the quality of source material, which right. for some people might be the difference, right? Uh, if you don't have a Craig Mazin, Mazin writing a Chernobyl, then how can you make it, Right. But I don't think that's the problem. Uh, they've they've clearly had some really talented, uh, maybe as close as they've gotten has been something like a Queen's Gambit or something like that. Um, but this is operating on a whole other level. But they, they do have the quality because I'm also looking at their upcoming release of Three Body Problem. I've read those books. Oh, yeah. Those are incredible books. And yet I'm worried about that production on every facet. Uh, and so I'm, I'm rooting for it cause I really want that to be good. Uh, but I am holding that same like paused breath of, I don't know if you, if you guys are figuring it out over there um, or you're just getting productions done. Uh, those are two different things. And my second thought is I also worry a little bit about the, the, the industry at whole because they're part of the, 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 I don't understand necessarily what the the WJ is going for in some of their demands. Um, one of the things that they want is a minimum amount of writers in a writer's room. And so for something like Chernobyl, I'm wondering how, what they're wanting would impact something like a Chernobyl that was created and written by one person. Like you had one writer in that room. And if he'd been forced to hire four other writers, does that, does that still apply Is what they're wanting still going to apply or are they making some leeway for like a single single writer's room? I don't know. I I haven't seen that answered anywhere yet, Um, but that's what I'm hoping for because there are some shows that wouldn't be what they are with too many voices in the room. I'm thinking something like the white Lotus um, along with Chernobyl and I'm sure a handful of others if I sat and thought, but hopefully there's, you know, some leeway there. And uh, because every once in a while, like, I wouldn't say this is, I understand why they want what they want because that's being really abused by the system right now. Whenever you hire a few writers for a few weeks to to knock out a a, a show Bible um, and then you go and prep everything and then you hire some other writers for a few more weeks to crank out the, the scripts. And now you've gotten away with not having to pay, you know, five writers for six months. And instead you paid, you know, uh, eight writers for 10 weeks. And it's like, oh, hey. We just, sh- you know, shivved a bunch of writers, uh, in order to make the show work. Uh, but that's a whole other, there's a big, big conversation that they're having right now about the future of, uh, the industry and streaming, how that fits in or how the old way fits into this new way. I don't know. Um, I'm rooting for the WGA to get what they want. I know that, <laughs> um, because the, the, the studios have been really myopic, but anyway um yeah so those are my wanderings um and certainly not my my solutions um
0: but i gotcha yeah i love it
2: nice okay well what are you gonna recommend this week man
0: uh, i gotta go i gotta go lighter uh on the front here um <laughs> i'm gonna go with guardians of the galaxy volume three we haven't we haven't recorded that yet so um nice. it's i think i I went into it with very low expectations and I thought that a lot of it was was fun and beautiful uh story um, for rocket and um yeah, really enjoyed it, so gonna go light got nice. I'm going to lean the other direction <laughs> I'm going to recommend... I knew you would that's why I went light.
2: I knew you would. <laughs> I'm gonna recommend a book it's called Truck stop Rainbows um it's by Eva. Pekarkova, um probably, and it's a book written. I forget. I haven't read this in a while. It's in. A, it takes place in Eastern Europe um, under the. I want to say under the USSR, but even that might not be completely accurate. And it's it's about life under those kind of conditions, under a socialist or communist uh, uh, regime, and what it means to you as. Uh, someone trying to get an education and dealing with the the medical system. And it's just really fascinating because it's written, you know, very honestly and it's exploring like her sexual life um, as in how it turns based on her needs. Um, and it's just, it's brutal. It's unflinching. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, it's also beautiful um, and it's really well written. Uh, yeah. And so if you, once you kind of explore, I want to say it takes place in what was Czechoslovakia. Uh, There is no longer a Czechoslovakia. Now we have Slovakia and the Czech Republic. Um, But I want to say it takes place in uh, Czechoslovakia before the the disintegration or the separate or whatever. And if not, apologies. Uh, I haven't read it in several years. But yeah, I think that's worth reading if you want some additional perspective about, I don't know, um, Eastern Europe and so yeah stay tuned for next week uh we lighten the load a little bit um and have you know some some sci-fi fun with source code we'll see jake gyllenhaal um i don't know not let a train explode or something I, i forget the uh the details right Pretty sure it explodes a lot. Oh, or <laughs> the, the exact opposite. Um, or the exact opposite. Yeah. <laughs> and awesome. so, take a take a view on that. Uh, I don't know if it's streaming somewhere. It's probably you know a couple bucks on some platform or another. If you haven't already seen it, and yeah, if you're enjoying the show, don't forget drop us a review. Subscribe. You know, Todd, we make millions off this show. Everyone knows we make millions off the show, and mm-hmm. at this point, yeah. we've gotten too many millions. What we really want huh. now just drops a little five-star review, you know? Okay. We just want to give back. want to give back. It's time. It's time (laughs) for us. (laughs) Got it. Yeah. And if you want to comment on this episode in particular, you can do that at the slash Chernobyl.
0: And our quote of the day is from Marie Curie. I'm one of those who think like Nobel, that humanity will draw more good than evil from new discoveries. I, I agree However, hopefully, the evil part isn't the part that destroys us. Right. right. No matter how small, right? Oh, it takes this one really, really evil dude. We know that. We We've do seen it in history, and just the wrong
2: but. person in command, right? Like, even if Dyatlov wasn't necessarily evil, he was certainly full of himself, full of pride, and just ha- just having the wrong guy. Evil or not, right? It's like, but then make them evil on top of that. Oh yeah, you're you're in for it. Um, mm-hmm. But that's kind of the interesting thing. Just Oppenheimer, and now we're talking about Chernobyl. Um, there's there's a temptation, I think, for people to go back into this China syndrome mentality of nuclear is bad. And my hope, and so my, glad you called that out. Right? Like, and and my hope and my belief is that watching something like Chernobyl. Doesn't turn you off entirely from nuclear energy because if we're trying to solve climate change, I think it's way harder, nearing impossible if you don't include nuclear energy in that that discussion. Um, and so, what I'm hoping, watching something like Sh- like Chernobyl does, is instead encourage you to be you know diligent um, and and take this seriously and respectful about this kind of uh, technology because they could have taken down a continent, you know, or worse. I don't know. Um, but as we move forward and and hopefully it just sucks because that whole China syndrome thing really set us back. Probably. I mean, I guess you could run history uh, like Dr. Strange and look at all the possible outcomes and, and say, actually, it, it inadvertently saved us, you know, a lot. Um, mm-hmm. But at this point, hopefully, you know, we can responsibly think about nuclear and how to use it. And um, and and instead use this as a learning experience instead of as a, uh, an ultimatum that you can't do that or else everything dies because right now we're, we are dealing with some serious stuff. And if we don't look at something as powerful and, and clean as, as nuclear, we're going to have to account for that too. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually very safe and it's, like very effective. I mean, I I, nuclear is, it it just got a bad rap because when it went bad, like Chernobyl, it went real bad, you know, but the point is like, you know, there have been things put into place where something like that more than likely would not ever happen again. and and it's a, it's a clean energy and everything. But you know what? The funny thing is, is that if you look at it from a, you know, 10,000 foot view, it's just a, It's just a goddamn steam engine. Right. That's all it is. It's it's a steam engine. How is it we're in 2023 and we're still fucking trying to make steam engines? Just a new version of a steam engine. Like he's explaining it in in the final episode. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. It just makes steam. I mean, he explains it earlier. And, you know, but it just makes steam. The whole point of like fission is to make steam. We can't think of some better thing. Better way to use fission than to boil water?
2: Turbines. (laughs) More turbines. That blew my mind. I was working on a project a couple years ago talking about a reservoir and uh, an energy dam. And as I was getting into it, I was like, oh, so at the heart of this, it's, it's just trying to make turbines spin. That's not what I thought was going on in there. It always sounds so much more technical and advanced and now watching Chernobyl you're like yeah we are still just dealing with steam (laughs) like what I did you get into it all the 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 race with the room temperature superconductor over the last like month or two Uh uh-huh yeah like that was super fascinating because whenever you start inventing things like that um, a material that can operate as a superconductor at room temperature unpressurized, a whole world of possibility opens. And one of those things is the ability to transport energy losslessly over great distances. That's one of our problems right now. It's why it, you know, people got really upset about Texas not being a part of the power grid or whatnot. And to some degree, sure, but we're also a really big state. And so degradation is going to happen if you're trying to get, you know, power from whatever Oklahoma, uh, down to Austin or Brownsville or something like there's only so many miles you can run electricity over a power line um before it degrades into nothing um but with a room temperature superconductor suddenly like you can retain all that and um and a number of other ways that and so to your point like we're still messing with steam and we haven't figured out whatever this next big jump is when it happens it's gonna make you know, it's gonna make us look like we've been living on steamboats.
0: <laughs> I mean, we have been. <laughs> it's cr- it's crazy to me to think that that's that's currently what we're doing. Yeah. Currently, that is our nuclear technology. Is just we're trying to make heat in a way we're trying to put less energy into making heat to make steam. Crazy. That's it. That's it. It's it blows my mind, but that's where we're at. You know. I'd like to think that there was some other way, but that's—it's just so—it's just hilarious to me that that was it. I was like, "What the hell are we in the 1800s? Why is this still a thing? We're in 2023." But uh, all right, what pretty it is. much. And just
2: uh, for the record, that room temperature superconductor did not work out. Um, that no. was debunked. Um, as it goes with. Magical breakthrough technologies all too often, um, yeah. but yeah, that that's kind of my hope, man. Is as because I agree with everything you, you're saying. Like nuclear really is very very safe. Even if you're looking at something like Fukushima, what killed people was the explosion, yeah, and the the you know the the storm and the escaping of uh, the area. Like radiation, I think, finally ended up killing one person. I think is the the toll. I'll double check that and add it to the show notes. Um, But worst case scenarios certainly exist. And that's where, you know, responsibility. But we also need to find a way to make it a little bit quicker getting these things, you know, out. Um, Because if you just bury them in red tape, uh, it's going to make reaching climate goals that much harder. And so use chernobyl as a guidepost um but not as like a, a stop sign um is is my hope for the world
0: um i'm I glad agree. it exists yeah i agree great I, I had a great time talking about this as difficult as it was uh, it's just so such an amazing piece of art to watch um so thank you craig for writing this yes. and uh, hbo for making it Uh, We hope you enjoyed this episode Um, And if you liked it, please share us with your friends Subscribe, review us, all that stuff Really helps a lot And we love hearing it, we really do It means a lot to us Uh, So until next week, I'm Todd I'm Wes Go watch some movies